0: August 1993, the Sydney Olympic Bid Committee is in the final stages of its pitch to Juan Antonio Samaranch and company at the IOC. The first Collins-class submarine is rolling off the production line. The Fugitive has its box office competition on the run. We're weeks away from the premiere of the ultimate film about breeding, Jurassic Park. And UB-40's Falling in Love With You is on a seven-week run at number one. Les Benton is the racing manager for the Victoria Racing Club, and he can't help but wonder whether a bold plan, years in the making, will actually come to fruition. From the TDN Australia and New Zealand, this is annuals, season 1993-94, they've arrived. In the early 1990s, Australasia's premier race, the Melbourne Cup, was looking a little tired. As recently as two years ago, Australia's horse of the year, Let's Lope, had claimed the race. But she was increasingly becoming an outlier in a race that used to be the ultimate meeting place of battlers and bluebloods. Let's Lope was also plying her trade in America now. The racing world was shrinking, and the VRC's showpiece event was struggling to keep up. Enter Les Benton, a dynamic thinker who had identified the issue before most.
1: I became racing manager in 1986, VRC, and around about 1990... We were being overshadowed on the world stage by races like the Japan Cup, the Hong Kong International meeting, Mm -hmm. Singapore International Mm -hmm. races, and Dubai was emerging on the world stage as well. And, you know, we were looking at the Melbourne Cup becoming quite stagnant and the Melbourne Cup carnival, the spring racing carnival becoming, you know, just run of the mill on all the carnivals here again sort of thing and Royal Ascot was booming. Um, These these other races on the world stage were booming. So I thought, well, we must do something about this. And it it increased the exposure of what I believed was, you know, arguably the best racing carnival in the world. Um, If you want to throw in Royal Ascot, you can.
0: Royal Ascot was one thing, but the stars of the old world had also had their heads turned by another cup, the Breeders' Cup. The American confection of the visionary breeder John Gaines, the Breeders' Cup styled itself as the World Championships of Horse Racing, and began in 1984. The premise was to provide a Group 1 showpiece race for most of the surface and distance options that championship horses could contest, on a single day, at a different racetrack each year, much like the NFL Super Bowl. The prize money was extraordinary, funded by fees paid by breeders and stallion owners, The Breeders' Cup, occurred in the first week of November. But the Melbourne Cup had one ace up its sleeve. There was no Breeders' Cup race for stayers. They could fit that niche, and since the Cup became a million-dollar race with what a nuisances win in 1985, the money was good. In fact, interest from overseas had been there for a while. It just never amounted to anything.
1: I remember back in Around about the mid nineteen eighties, there was a really good horse in England called Longfellow, and Longfellow was um, entered to the Melbourne Cup, and he was given in those days, I think, the equivalent of nine stone ten, nine stone eight, and we we got the odd um, entry every now and again in the in the mid eighties, the late eighties, and nothing eventuated. No one did anything about it.
0: So Benton began work on making his vision a reality. The offering had to measure up to events around the world. Early in
1: 1993, I went to Japan on a racing study tour. But it was the way they went about their administration and their racing. And of course, mm-hmm. they they were emerging on the world stage through the breeding industry. They were importing the stallions from England, Europe and America to build up their racing industry so they could show off their racing industry and their country to the
0: rest of the world. Japan was making a concerted effort to grow its top-level breeding pool, with studs going on a spending spree. In the years 1990, 91, 92 and 93 alone, the breed-shaping American Horse of the Year Sunday Silence came to Japan as did ARC winners Tony Bin, Carol House and Dancing Brave. Darby at Epsom winners Secreto, Dr Devious and Commander-in-Chief. Another American Horse of the Year, Criminal Type, and of course Australian Horse of the Year, Bozam, And that's just the stallions. Great European and US families entered the Japanese stud book around this time, and in the Japan Cup, the industry had a lucrative carrot that served as a marketing tool to the rest of the world and a way of measuring the local industry's progress.
1: They, they invited, on a yearly basis, administrators from various organisations from around the world, from South America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and one administrator from each country Over about it, I think it was about an eight day period, was given a study tour of Japanese racing and they took up everywhere they showed up, what they did, how they did it, um, their administration, their sponsorship, um, what their vision was. And so we, you know, I was lucky enough to be um, selected to go in 93 and from there I gained valuable knowledge and lots of ideas. Um, uh, from that tour to take away um, to instill into the Victoria Racing, and then went to England after that on the basis of talking to <laughs> trainers like Dermot World, Luca Kamani, Mark Johnson, Paul Cole, David Ellsworth, Lord Huntington, William Huntington um and just showing them what we had, I took videos. I took pamphlets, I gave um, talks at certain uh, dinners that um, we'd arranged to meet with a number of um, all these international trainers and European trainers, and we had to just sell a product that mm. really I thought was world well known but in essence, we weren't really that well-known on the world stage. So it was quite a difficult job.
0: Talks with the trainers in Europe were progressing well, but there were a few sticky issues.
1: The, the, the big question that everyone asked, or the trainers, Bob Dermott and Mark Johnson and um, William Huntington asked, was the quarantine. And of course, in those days, just the quarantine was three weeks in England, three weeks in Australia, and the flight path must come through America, New Zealand, Australia. The flight path was a 36 hour travel time. because yes. We couldn't come through the Middle East in those days because of, uh, of the disease of African horse sickness. We've overcome all those uh, restrictions now, of course. So a lot of work had to be done in the lead up to me going to England. The, the, the work involved was the quarantine. We had to reduce the time, horses had to spend in quarantine, three weeks, three weeks. We got that down to two weeks, two weeks. Right. And then, of course, the flight path was a major, major problem. So that took a couple of years um, of negotiation with ACWIS and the um, Department of Government, and we finally um, with the help of I think it was Jeremy Instone from Instone Containers, the and, the, you know, their world renowned uh, shipping of horses. Mm. Um, we ended up getting approval to ship horses through the Middle East. And that meant it was around about a 20, 18 to 24-hour um, time span from the time they left the stables to the time they got to Australia. And then, of course, so that was all, all well and good. But then we didn't have a quarantine facility in Australia for um racing horses. Yeah. The thoroughbred race horses to to quarantine and keep in training at the same time. So in the, in those that those couple of years, 1993 I went to places like Packenham, Banella, Cranburn. I even went to Werribee Of course Werribee is the place now, but um nothing came up to um standard and um we had to appease the, uh, Aquis, to the AQUIS, and the bit from um, Aquas. and right under our noses, of course, we had Sandown Park. But we did have a problem with Sandown because um, they also had motorcar racing there, and that had, uh, and one of the big meetings there was during in September when horses, if they were going to quarantine, would be at Sandown. We thought that would be a bit of a worry, and we didn't have any. They purpose-built, stable for quarantining. And uh, so we decided in the first year, if we could get horses to come, we would use the horse stall area. And we would fence it off and dedicate the horse stall area to any horses that came to Australia for quarantine purposes. And they would have full use of stand our race course. And um, we... We had discussions within the BATC, now the Melbourne Racing Club, and um, although we did have one race car meeting there, it didn't affect the um, horses, it didn't affect his quarantine status. They say knowledge is power, and that the difference between something good and something great is attention to detail. Plus Vital provides state-of-the-art genetic testing for the thoroughbred industry, used around the world to help make better informed racing and breeding decisions. With top trainers including Danny O'Brien, Malua Racing, Lindsay Park, Kieran Maher, Archie Alexander, Matthew Smith and Jason Warren, all finding the benefit of Plus Vital genetic testing and where the smallest margins matter. Can you afford not to know? To find out more, email us at info at plusvital.com.
0: It became very clear very early that there was one horse that was the VRC's best shot at international participation.
1: Vintage Crop was nominated in '92 and he was given 49 and a half kilos, I might add, in in, in that year. And of course, we received letters from Dermot World asking. Um, you know, asking questions about all those things I've just mentioned. And so we wrote back to him and he was our main target to Mm -hmm. develop an association with him in an effort to bring not just vintage crop but other horses on the basis that he'd put his toe in the water and um, was keen on um, international racing.
0: Well, did have an international outlook. In 1990, he trained a son of Be My Guest to run fourth in the Derrenstown Stud Derby Trial Stakes. But instead of heading for the downs at Epsom, he headed for downtown Elmont, New York, and the Belmont Stakes. Weld and the horse, named Go and Go, arrived just two days before the final leg of the American Triple Crown and in a never-before-seen feat upset the best dirt horses, including Kentucky Derby winner Unbridled, by eight and a quarter lengths. In more cosmic symmetry, go and Go was out of an alleged man named Irish Edition. Irish Edition's half-sister by Dolch was called Market Slide. And to a mating with theatrical, Market Slide produced a handy stayer named Media Puzzle. When Les and the VRC delegations had met with Weld in Ireland to discuss vintage crop, the meetings were actually conducted under a giant portrait of Go and Go. But face-to-face meetings were rare, and communication was anything but easy. We
1: were discussing all these um, issues over the phone and mainly by letter. And letters were taking, you know, a week to get there, a week to come back, and so time constraints were unbelievable. It was an amazing, amazing effort, an amazing achievement because there was no internet, time, and And they're sleeping while we're working. So, so, yes, it was difficult. But the best thing was going there, showing them all the pamphlets, the books, the photos, videos, and just telling them that our racing was at the highest level, our administration was at the highest level, our integrity was at the highest level.
0: The connections of Drum Taps and Vintage Crop weren't the only ones who almost made that first trip in 93. So
1: Michael Stout had a horse, and we didn't quite get it over the line. Something either went wrong. And um, I think Paul Cole had a horse as well. Mark Johnson showed keen interest in the court. A couple of years later, he came with the European champion, uh, which was a big flop here, Double Trigger. But in those early days it was
2: hard to get
1: more than three or four horses. And if we got four horses it was sort of a bonus, it was good. Yeah. Yes, Godolphin weren't players in those days, I didn't no. I didn't have I didn't have access to Godolphin. Um they were just emerging. Although Jake Hamdan, of course
0: had horses with um uh, Colin Hayes. Shadwell did have interests in Australia, and David Hayes would win the other big cup with one of their imported stallions, the flashily marked son of topsider, Fra. Look, he was, a, he was a tough
2: horse. I wouldn't call him a champion by any means. But he competed at Group 1 level very well and won the Caulfield Cup with a good weight. He went to Hong Kong and went second in the Hong Kong International. And another English horse that was probably, it did well in Australia well above the uh, English ratings.
0: In fact, Lindsay Park had pioneered racing imports, of a sort, more than a decade earlier.
2: Beldale Bull and uh, Yearn and Akalak won the Melbourne Cup. Ours came in and were trained by Australians and written by Australians, but no, that was thought through with Robert Sankster and they came down. He probably
0: got reinvented a little bit, with Chris Waller doing so well in the early days of his career. Finally, after two years or more of build-up, vintage crop and drum taps boarded a plane bound for Australia.
1: So William Huntington and Dermot World prepared their horses in England for two weeks to the quarantine facility. They put them on at Spain and with their grooms and um, staff, they came to Australia and they arrived one night in uh, late September and it was midnight. And I'm getting a lump in my throat telling you this. It was midnight at Sandown, and I thought uh, I just received a phone call from the float company. The, the horses had landed at Marine. They floated them to Sandown, and I and I was waiting at Sandown to direct them to where the horses were going to quarantine in the horse stall area, the dedicated stalls. And I saw these headlights arrive at Sandown. And it was amazing. Even now, even now, it it just brings tears to my eyes because it was just incredible. The float arrived, and in those days, we had just been given a mobile phone, and it was like a brick. And I rang the then chief executive, Rodney Johnson, I was the racing manager, and I said to him, They've arrived, and it said, I think we've just changed the course of history in Australian racing, and I'll never, ever, ever forget
3: that.
0: While all this was happening, a homegrown product with a pedigree as international as vintage crops, was building a resume that, by his retirement, would stand comparison with any horse. He was from the first crop of Last Tycoon, out of the Aladar Mare Alshandaga, the product of a single shuttle season under Tony Bott's watch at Sejunho Stud in that tumultuous 1989 season. Bott had taken the colt to the 1992 Magic Million sale at the Gold Coast, where he was one of seven last tycoons in the catalogue.
4: As a yearling, he of uh, uh, the ones that we took to to sale was the closest resemblance, perhaps, to the sire. Uh, maybe some of the Australians uh, p- perhaps weren't quite used to the Europe. Last tycoon was a, a fine, refined sort of European classic thoroughbred-looking horse. Very well-reefy, uh, wasn't he? Yeah, and uh, a lot of. Australians still sort of were used to the Star Kingdom, you know, big, bar, heavy-boned-sized um, horses, then he might have slipped through the net. Henry Plumtree purchased the animal on behalf of uh, Lloyd Williams and Henry being, you know, of English heritage and everything else in the bloodstock for many years, was very familiar with uh, the European bloodlines and everything else and to his credit, um, uh, picked him as a yearling.
3: It was the first year that I sort of bought a significant number of yearlings for Lloyd Williams. The reason I had the contact with Lloyd was because in 1987, I bought him three stayers out of England. He was living in London because he'd done a deal with John Elliott to buy the bass Charrington breweries in England. So that connection stood me in very good stead in 1992 when he asked me to buy. He said the market's down 60%. It's a good time to buy yearlings. I'm particularly interested in the progeny of the Tycoon. I went to Magic Millions and we picked up probably four or five last Tycoon cults. I do remember saying to Lloyd, I'm going to rank them. There were a couple of others in that says draft. I really liked as well. I think one of them made too much money. But I said, if you only take one home, this is the one I think you should take.
0: John Peatfield was the vet for Lloyd Williams at the time. The first draft
5: of last Tycane, so I think there were six or eight, but they were just stunning one after another. They just had this look about them, and Henry and I said mahogany is probably the pick of them, and he was the cheapest of the top three or four. The top three or four, I can't remember the names of the others, but they were all pretty handy horses. Mm. But mahogany was... Uh, just stunning. He's still, I still haven't graded a yearling higher than him in all that time. He just had the extractor. He's a bit small, but um, just a magical yearling. And look,
3: any bloodstock agent will tell you that what they look for in a yearling is with athleticism, good hip, good shoulder, and all that stuff. Mulgady was just, he was a gorgeous looking yearling. He had a lot of quality which was Last Tycoon. He was a beautiful walking horse. He had a great quarter. I watched him. He was in and out of his box a lot. He appeared to have a very good temperament. But if you said to me, did you see him and fall in love? I fell in love with three or four of them. But I ended up with him. And I think we paid 65 grand for him, which, in a collapsed market, it was still quite a bit of money. Because we went to New Zealand that year and we spent no more than thirty grand on individually on six or seventy yearlings. Mm. and uh, the best of them became a Mahogany's galloping companion, a horse called Coachwood. and he cost fifteen grass. He was by the ill-fated off. and Coachwood uh, won the grand quality and ran fourth in fourth or fifth in the Melbourne Cup. But his mainstay stay in life was to be Mahogany's galloping companion. So
0: Mahogany was as nice a type as they come. By a star Galloper out of an Aladar half sister to an Irish Derby winner. He had stallion prospects stamped on his forehead,
5: just above the snip, surely. You know, Morgan. he had to be gelded. He was a cheeky bugger. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he would have made it uh, uh, very long as a cult. But he, he just had to add an attitude. Um, but um, it, he certainly, yeah, uh, and he, he retained a bit of attitude. And um, was certainly cheekiness us up as a gelding.
3: Look, he ran as a spring two-year-old. He ran into Mersen Cooper. And he was a bit of a monkey in the race. I think he caught out wide, his head came up in the air. And Lee said to me afterwards, he says, you're not going to see the best of this horse unless we him." He said, he's a pig. Well, worse to that effect. At the time, Mr. Williams didn't have any Australian aspirations at all for him. Um, he wanted a racehorse, so we didn't even think about it. He was gilded. He came when he came back in the autumn. He was gelding, um, and John was spot on. You know, he he. Um, we would never have had the horse that we had had we tried to keep him a colt.
0: Petefield recalls a conversation early in Mahogany's career
5: that set a high bar for the colt. At the Caracas sale, I said to Lee. Uh, I said, how's Mahogany going? And Lee said, uh, I think we might have another Kingston town, which I uh, nearly, nearly fainted. Uh, he, 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 yeah. Lee identified him very early, and from then on I thought he must be pretty special because Lee was absolutely flying at that stage.
0: The Freedmans won the Slipper that year with Bent Masque, but the leading two-year-old in the stable by number of Group 1 wins was Mahogany, thanks to a Queensland double. The spring of 1993 was the beginning of a truly unique three-year-old campaign.
3: Well, it was. We had a couple of wobbles in the spring on the way through. But, um, I think he got beaten in the spring stakes at New, Newcastle. Um, and I remember Lee saying, this horse needs to come back to Melbourne and he, he would get, need to get him ready for the call for the Guinness and he needs to come back now. And I mean, I took a keen interest in it because... Obviously, he was my first Group 1 winner, but I wasn't hands-on managing Mr. Williams' horses at the time. I hadn't moved to Melbourne at that time, but the horse went down to Melbourne. We got beaten in the Ami Vars. I think the horse got back in that race at Moonee Valley, and I remember thinking either they'd given him a quiet one or he wasn't quite good enough to make up that ground from the back he had an extraordinary ton of foot. Whether it was over 2,000, 2,400, whether it was over 2,000, whether it was a, a fine furnace and a lightning, he could sit off the pace, he could sit on the pace, but when you asked him to go, he had this incredible turn of foot. And he showed that in that derby, and that was probably the most exciting day and remains the most exciting day in my racing career. It was phenomenal to be that. The derby win was joined by the
0: AJC variety. Add two Group 1 guineas in a mile, a Tullock stakes, and an up-and-coming to the conversation, and you have a truly unique season, made more so with future events showing that Mahogany almost definitely wasn't a natural stayer.
3: And did he, was he a genuine 2,400-meter horse? Um, because I don't think he was. Um, what, do you get that sort of trip? I've seen numerous occasions where a spring three-year-old in England and in Australia Will actually, stay the derby trip because they're just better than the other horses. They can go to sleep in running, they put their heads on their chest, and they can run on at 14 and a half to the firm without expending too much energy.
5: The fact that he, he absolutely dominated those derbies uh, uh, and ended up a, a, a top sprinter, although his probably his Cox plate performance was his greatest, I thought, giving all that weight to one mm. um, octagon it reinforced the thing that, that you don't have to be a stayer to win a derby or, or or an oaks for that matter you just have to be the best three-year-old around and very athletic and attempts to try and get mahogany to stay failed and then went, when when dropped, he dropped back to to, to being a sprinter again uh, he was dominant
3: we, we were very lucky i mean we had a, an amazing team both then and in latter years when i went to melbourne to manage for lloyd um, you mentioned John Peatfield, unequivocally the best racing bet in Australia at the time. Phenomenal, soundless bet. Very good on confirmation. Quite forgiving on confirmation. Mowgli was a little bit slack in his past, when he was a year, John said it would never bother him. Merlene was very offset in one knee, he said, yeah, never worry. That sort of intellectual property from John, the intuitive nature of the Friedman Brothers at that time was absolutely second to none. And I've worked with some great trainers around the world. There was none better than those four brothers in 1993, all the way through the 1990s. They were incredible what they achieved. I remember that yard, I think it was at Leonard Crescent, they had a small yard at the top of Flemington and they had a big yard down in bottom. The top yard only had 15 boxes, and at one stage, I reckon, every box telegram had one winner in it. Poetic King, Mahogany, Northwood Bloom, um, the list goes on, it was phenomenal.
0: Mahogany was Horse of the Year, but Last Tycoon was also champion sire. In claiming the title, he achieved history. He was the first shuttle stallion to win a sire's title in Australia, in fact anywhere in the world. To put that in context, since Last Tycoon, a grand total of two North-South shuttlers, Danehill and Street Cry, have won the title. A shuttle horse has never been champion sire in New Zealand. And Last Tycoon did it with just one crop. When Bletchingly and Century claimed back-to-back titles at the dawn of the 80s, with oldest progeny being only three, they had two-year-olds racing. Last Tycoon didn't. Sechenho studs Tony Bott can draw a lot of credit. Remember that package of mares he talked about last episode? Well, they had paid off in spades.
4: I think we drew red five, we one winners from our old mares that new the first season. Um, three of them were from the mayors we'd purchased overseas, Mel Shandiga, the Dam of Mahogany, Princess Tracy, the Dam of Tracy's Element. peak in Step, who was the Dam of Super Sheila. Uh, then we had two local mayors, Food for Love, who was a lunchtime mayor, the Dam of Lady Jackio, and Niab, and who was a Kairu Star mayor, uh, the Dam of Magic of Money. I think that would probably still be nearly a record today. Um, worldwide, nearly. Five Group 1 winners out of their own broodmares uh, in one season from a stadium. When you go through it, some very good judges bought them all. I mean, Magic of Money was bought by Ivan Allen, who all trained out of Singapore and then Hong Kong and raced horses worldwide and was renowned as a, one of the best judges of the of yearling going and a fantastic trainer. Then we had the uh, South African people um, uh, bought uh, Super Sheila and Tracy's Element, and they went over and both were champions over there. And brought back, I think uh, originally, uh, arifield bought Tracy's Element um, to Australia, and that was on sold to the Hutchins family years later. And um, Super Sheila might have gone to, to America initially, uh, then the solicitor his Pastor Esmond Philip Esmond.
0: And Lady Jackie, o, of course, by the former Stockwell stud manager and great eye for a horse. George Smith, correct. Scarily, Super Sheila and Tracy's element later the dam of a horse of the year in Typhoon Tracy, raced in South Africa. Imagine if they'd been allowed to contribute to Last Tycoon's Australian haul.
4: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, uh, it, we all wondered what might have been. Um, yeah, uh, if they had a race here, obviously competition was greater. But, you know, to win a group one race anywhere in the world, you've got to be uh, doing something right or have some ability. It was proven that, you know, they paid big money to bring her here to Australia as a broodmare.
0: David Hayes was also a beneficiary of that first crop, training a handy filly for Shadwell named Assawir. Yeah, I think she was out of a mare called Easy Gate. She was, making her a half-sister to Snippets. And
2: she was actually a really classy filly, uh, ended up, Winning state races, uh, got retired as a broodmare. Probably worth more than she cost when she was bought as a yearling, and she was expensive. So, no, she was a good, very good filly. Never quite got to Group One, but she
0: was, she was a state class filly. Upon retirement, Assawee was mated to Lindsay Park and Shadwell's Melbourne Cup winner At Tallack. The first colt, who would later claim a Hillsmith Stakes as Garib, was of sufficient quality to warrant a return visit for Assawee. The resultant filly was named Nazma. And when sent to Dubai World and Japan Cup champ Singspiel, she produced that stallion's best Australian offspring, Sir Rupert Clark Stakes winner, Rawaya. When I got back from Hong Kong,
2: uh, he was one of my better horses in training. Um, but she had Nick Andretti to get them with. She um, yeah. had a lot of Group One placings, I think, behind
0: her. and did win one, but uh, uh, she was she was very good filly. Segino so, you know, only had last tycoon for one season. The payoff for the industry was huge. But what about the farm?
4: Kilmore had uh, formed an alliance with Arrowfield up soon after that. That's why um, Last Tycoon went there. But in fairness, they gave us a number of breeding rights to the horse for a couple of <laughs> years uh, okay. because uh, they, they realised uh, that we'd virtually put him on the map. And what of Last Tycoon's legacy to
0: the breed? In New Zealand, he will be best remembered for his son O'Reilly, who was a foal at this time and would go on to New Zealand Horse of the Year and champion stallion honours.
3: The Australian male line conduit was less obvious. You look at a horse like Inglesia, who was a last tycoon, how influential has Inglesia been? And was he, was he thought of as a great stallion at the time? Not really. But I think the influence of last tycoon is, is, is pretty 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 deep. Was he given the opportunity? No, he probably wasn't, because Daniel really overtook everything in the 1990s. He could get quite light-bound horses, and people tell me that they could be quite temperamental. Yeah. Now, we never saw that with Mulgandy. I mean, he certainly had a mind of his own, but to my knowledge, the Freemans never turned around to me and said, oh, he's difficult to weed this, to weed that. Lazy, maybe, but a lot of good horses are, you know? Um, I think, it, was a, I think it, was, it could have been a far more influential line than it actually was. But then I look at Iglesia and I say, well, he's the plague bearer. Iglesia was conceived in the spring after Mahogany's
0: Horse of the Year season. Was the masque mayor Yodel's visit to Last Tycoon a result of those exploits? And those of Lady Jackio, Asawir and Company? It's hard to be definitive, but an argument could be made that, were there no Mahogany, there may never have been a written tycoon.
3: A no written tycoon, no capitalist, you know. Yeah. And um, the, the rise of written tycoon has been a phenomenon in itself, you know. And now you've got sons of his and Henry doing a great job with capitalist. And it's, you know, capitalist absolutely encapsulates for me what, what the Australian market wants. Now, our, our overseas detractors would say that that makes us very one eyed about. The, what we're breeding, but what we're breeding is the most precocious horses in the world. Can they compete in Ascot? You bet they can. Can they compete in, in Europe or Hong Kong? You bet they can. Are they better from five furlongs to seven furlongs? Yeah, they probably are, but you've got to go back past Dane Hill and past Last last Tycoon to see where it comes from. Star Kingdom was probably the biggest influence of all, in my view. And I'm biased in that regard, because when I went to Widden, we had Betchingley and then I had Betchingley for five seasons there. Biscay stood up the road at Barrowmore. Um, Todman died the year I got there, but I was surrounded by all this Star Kingdom stuff. So, um, and I remember the types of horses they were, short, butty, very strong-topped. And I think the, I think the Australians, far from um, attracting criticism over what they breed, They should be rejoicing in it because is their benchmark race the Spring Classics? No, it's not. It's the Golden Slipper. Mm. People want to win a Golden Slipper. Uh, Six months later, they want to win an Everest. Do they want to win a Derby? Yeah, they'd love to win a Derby because it's worth a couple of million. But the race that people think about and dream about is the Slipper.
0: If the autumn is about that slipper, the spring is about the cup. And when we left Les, Drum Taps and Vintage Crop had just touched down. The horses um, were
1: vetted and they were in really, really good order. Fantastic. And we did two weeks quarantine. Um, they had full full use um, of the Sandown race course, which was wonderful. There was no race meeting during that time. And uh, they trained their horses. It's just incredible um, how they settled in and acclimatised.
0: They might have acclimatised to Australia well, but had the racing industry acclimatised to them? I wasn't
1: the most liked person in the world. Uh, and by the way, I got a number of phone calls, anonymous. I got a number of anonymous letters. I got run off the road on one occasion. What? ninety four, ninety five? yeah. Anyway... A, a, a lot of the locals um, didn't like it, but can I just say this? The ones that didn't like it were the first ones to put their hand up to go to Japan and Hong Kong.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: They were saying, they're taking our money. They're doing this, they're doing that. It was just unbelievable, the The um, anti feeling, and um, it wasn't good. But you had to overcome that, and we had to look at the big picture, and the big picture was we were going to internationalise the Melbourne Cup, the Melbourne Cup Carnival, the Spring Carnival. We were going to attract better television rights. We were going to attract better sponsorship. We were going to attract international sponsorship, as we did with um, uh, you know, the Emirates Airlines, of course, and then many other sponsors as well and all because of international participation. And one thing uh, in those days, back in 93 to 97, I think it was, we didn't have any incentives to give these connections. They paid everything. There was no pay. We only paid prize money down to fifth. So if you didn't run first, second or third, you were not going to make a profit on your venture into Australia. It was $100,000 in 93 all up to bring your voice to Australia and compete in the Melbourne Cup. Drumtaps didn't run a play and it cost the connection a hundred grand. So they, they were fantastic to take up the, the gamble, if you like.
0: Drum Taps' buccaneering connections were destined to go home empty-handed and there was still a lot that needed to go right before the son of Roussillon could claim the $2,035,000 first prize for the Cup. The two main men in the vintage crop Cup story arrived days out and Dermot Weld and jockey Mick Canan had a special request for Les. So
1: they wanted to walk the Flemington race track on the Sunday. So we made arrangements, We met, I met with them and we walked the track. Mick Cannon hadn't um ridden there before in Dermouth World, although he'd been to Flemington because he came as a young lad and worked with Tommy Smith and, and, and others. Um we walked the track on that Sunday and started at the at the uh thirty two hundred meter start and Mick Cannon every furlong or every second furlong would say liked to be in this position. At, at the 800 from home, he said, I'd like to be sitting around about here, um, eight or ninth, he said, and a lot of, and just off the fence, and he said, a lot of horses are going to be starting to tire. He said, um, I'll then make a move. He said, and I'll just sit on the horse until I get to the clock tower. He said, no, we will not make any move on the horse. And ask him for any sort of major effort till I hit the clock tower, he said, and then I'll win. And the last words he said, and Dermot said as we walked back to the car, he
0: said, I wished it would rain. Weld got his wish and some. The bird cage was one foot
1: underwater at nine thirty on cup morning.
0: My goodness.
1: That is that is a fact and we've got Photo, photograph of the workers in the birdcage with brooms and, and, ho- and um, suction, suction hoses pumping out the water from the birdcage. David Burke, who was the chairman of the day, said to Rodney Johnson, who then said to me, because I was doing the scratchings at the time in the office, Rodney was at the race course, he said to me, we have to make a decision by 10 o'clock whether we go on with this race meeting or not. And he said, we're going to take a punt, we're going to do what we do, uh, and we're going ahead with the meeting. But it was a 50-50 chance that that race meeting was going to be cancelled. So, yeah. Everything that everything that Mick Canaan said to me and Dermot on that Sunday came to fruition.
2: And he was a dominant player. He was a fantastic. He went past, fra- hit the front, I think it's I think he might have been in front at the clock tower, but he went past him pretty quickly. (laughs) And I think
0: far around six or six, and
2: Vince Scott was
0: dominant. Les Benton's initial thoughts were wild, but they quickly gave way to legacy. Exterior. I just (laughs) couldn't believe it. I I, I cast my
1: mind back to the, the three weeks earlier, and I thought. The Melbourne Cup Carnival will be the world championship for stayers. And that's how we tried to promote it from then on. And I thought, I thought in, you know, in 93, I thought, this is going to set the world alight. I said, we're going to do this every year and other races are going to be involved. We'll get the Caulfield Cup.
0: And it did. Only a few years later, Taufan's Melody won the Caulfield Cup. And as for Vintage Crop, he continued to excel at the highest level almost winning a Gold Cup at Ascot the next June. Two years later, he would run third in our Cup to Doremus, and his legacy was assured. And now at the rate, You ask most
2: trainers, but a lot of trainers around the world, the majority of them would say that they'd love to win the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. And before Vigie's Cross, English would call it a two-mile handicap. They couldn't believe that it could be the best race.
6: Look, I think it was fascinating. I think the world, obviously today, the world's a much smaller place than it was back in 93, 94. This is Jonathan Darcy. And travelling horses has become second nature to certainly those big European um, conglomerates. But, um, you know, I, I think it was a very important thing. I, I I think it was a great thing for Australia to put us on the map. Uh, I think people staying up... Um, uh, late at night to, to to watch a Melbourne Cup from Europe has become second nature to the thoroughbred enthusiasts over there. But back then, you, you talk to people in Ireland who can still remember where they were when that horse won. Like whether they were listening on a radio or watching on TV, it was important to them as well. And I think um, the level of prize money was obviously something that attracted the Europeans down for the race. And I think that's still the you know the case uh, today. I think um, there's a mystique about taking a horse to go and win an arc or taking a horse to go and win the King stand or taking a horse to Japan or taking a horse to Hong Kong. So it's one of the great, as a trainer, I think it's something that, you know, all trainers around the world, you know, would would love to test their mettle against the best in the world. And that's what, you know, I think that's what Dermot Weld wanted to do. He wanted to come down and beat the Aussies in a race on our home turf.
2: And, and the other thing, I, I think when they come down and enjoy the, the week of the racing and how Melbourne just builds up to, and, you know, it you, you, you does stop the nation. And as good as an English Derby is or dark, it it's very racing centric. The people, you know, they're
0: pure racers, but the whole general public don't get behind it like they do the Melbourne Cup. Vintage Crops win impacted the way Australasians viewed themselves as breeders. And I think
6: the concerns, if you spoke to breeders of that, era, I think the concern was, oh, hang on, uh, are these horses from Europe just a bit too good for us? Are we going to get wiped out here and everyone's going to, to want to buy European horses to win our best races? So I think there was probably a little bit of fear had come into, you know, to the breeders' minds. I think investors were looking, um, at that stage, you've got to remember, you know, horses like Sir Tristram and, and you know, his his sons Zabir, were, you know, were, were to come through. Uh, New Zealand were, were breeding a lot of the cup winners. Yeah, Caulfield Cup, Melbourne Cup, Derby winners. I think they probably went away a little bit from breeding that type of horse. They wanted to try and compete and breed sprinter milers. And I think that, I think probably uh, helped Europe get a, a, probably a, a bigger stranglehold on the, on the middle distance cup races in Australia than perhaps if New Zealand had stuck to their knitting and, and you know kept breeding really good stayers.
0: So... Northern Hemisphere horses had won the Caulfield and Melbourne Cups. New Zealand blushes had been saved by the phantom chances win in the Cox Plate. The focus, for Australian breeders at least, would continue to be on the only race on the calendar close to the cup in value, the Golden Slipper. And that season's winner would usher in an era of genetic dominance the likes of which had never been seen. on the next annuals. The yearlings were described as part horses
1: by uh, the elite. They had to do it the hard way.
3: There was obviously a changing of the guard with the two flag bearers for Star Kingdom disappearing and the two flag bearers for the next 20 years stepping up.
1: The Horses down on the ground, couldn't
0: get up.
6: I remember it was just a match panic. I'll go to my grave still thinking that was one of the, the saddest things I ever saw, Gus, was those horses lying in the um, in the alleyway.